0: Did you know that the Chinook salmon of the Yukon River make the longest migration of any salmon in the world? They swim more than 3,000 kilometers from the Bering Sea all the way across Alaska and the Yukon and almost to the British Columbia border. This is like driving from Vancouver to Kansas City. To make this distance, these salmon have to swim more than a single marathon every day before they reach their spawning grounds. Founded in 1987, the Pacific Salmon Foundation was originally the recipient of a small startup grant from the Ministry of uh, fisheries and um, and has grown quite a bit today. The idea of the PSF was to complement the community-based work of the federal fisheries ministry, and we're tasked with the mission of expanding BC salmon's resource. Today, I'm joined with PSF's president and CEO Michael Menier and vice president Jason Huang. Prior to moving to Vancouver in, in 2007, Michael had a career in Washington D.C. As a journalist and communications officer, so we expect you to speak very well on this podcast. His experience and education brought him to the Pacific Salmon Foundation where he started off as the Vice President for Development, Communications and Marketing for 10 years. And obviously hard work pays off because two years ago Michael was promoted to President and CEO. And as a local boy, Jason attended both SFU and BCIT before starting his career as a habitat biologist at the Fisheries and Oceans. And you were part of the team that made changes to the Fisheries Act in 2012. So today we've got both Michael and Jason with us as part of the expert team, and uh, for us to talk about your number one constituent, is the Pacific salmon. Thanks for being on the show.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, I've been. This has been. We've been working on this for probably about six or seven months to get you fellas in. Obviously, COVID didn't help. <laughs> and we are going to talk about four main themes. First of all, you guys are going to give us the sort of. State of the Union address on how salmon are doing here in BC and BC's coastal waters. We're going to switch to that and talk about some of the specific and acute challenges that are going on in the salmon species today. We're going to talk about some of your solutions as this foundation, the Pacific Salmon (coughs) Foundation. And finally at the end we're going to talk about how the community can get involved. Um, Now it's kind of good timing that you came in today because the federal government just announced their budget a week ago and they you have earmarked 647 million dollars to bolster efforts to save the Pacific salmon stocks. So, starting with that statement, uh, Michael and Jason, let's hear your comments on how's the how's the salmon stocks looking today.
1: Well, thanks again for having us, Sam. Yeah, it's great that you do this. Yeah, I would start with a very positive comment. You know, we like to have a glass half full approach, but the fact of the matter is, as you articulated in your opening, there salmon are very resilient. They've been around for eons. They've been adapting uh, for eons. And they've come along. They're still with us. And and, and in most cases, very strong and thriving and and maintaining themselves, right? So, what we have to try to do in BC is make sure that we, everything that we can control, we are turning in the direction of helping uh, Pacific salmon of course there are many stocks that are struggling some that are in crisis and in particular here in the lower mainland our Fraser watershed that we're on we have quite a few stocks that have been analyzed by an independent panel of scientists as either being what are considered threatened or on the verge of extirpation extinction and so we have to do everything that we can to make sure that those particular stocks, many of them interior Fraser stock, meaning they're born in the interior Fraser, make their way down and head out to the ocean. That we're doing everything we can to maintain the ones we have and restore them. Uh, and that involves uh, making sure the habitat is protected and, and, and restored, that we're wa- managing water uh, in particular. Salmon need abundant cold water in the freshwater context. At both the beginning and end of their life cycles. Uh, and then, you know, do everything that we can uh, using artificial means like hatcheries, uh, where there are stocks that need to be rebuilt, and to do that to strategically and scientifically, protecting their genetic diversity, uh, of course. And then, where we have human beings who interact with salmon through fisheries, making sure those fisheries are conducted in a way that, again, is going to ensure that those stocks that we have that are threatened or potentially extinct don't get any worse. And ideally, we have an opportunity to make those mitigations upriver that will, will help them. So, uh, you know, we have had in the past couple of years, very historic low returns of some species like sockeye salmon, uh, chinook and coho. And these are of course the stocks that are most prized for fisheries purposes. Uh, many of those stocks are are not doing well, and that's why, as you alluded to, the government has announced a major. Uh, I think it's historic in the sense that I don't know that we've ever had a one-time investment, uh, maybe back in the '70s.
2: But, yeah, I don't uh, think anything to this scale. <clears throat>
1: but it's a it's a major one-time investment mm-hmm. uh, and a recognition uh, that we've got to put everything that we can into to restoring these stocks. And I should say the provincial government has also kicked in a significant amount of money uh, and interest relative to their, what they had been doing historically. So, you know, again, glass half full, these are resilient animals. And the other thing I would say, the reason why we take a positive point of view on salmon and Andrew is we have a tremendous, both in terms of size and passion, uh, community of, of, of people that care very much about salmon. Not they care, but they go out, they roll up their sleeves They put on their gumboots and their waders, they get in the water and they do everything they can to make sure their stream, their river, their estuary is is looked after for salmon. We've counted uh, over 35,000 volunteers that have been supported through our programs or our grant making programs. So I think when you have that resilience of the animal uh, and then you have a strong devoted constituency devoted to wild salmon, I think we can fix this problem. Okay. Now you got more resources coming at it—financial resources. So I'm, I'm optimistic, Mm -hmm. cautiously optimistic about the future.
0: Well, that's a that's a good uh, positive angle, Michael, and one that I was quite surprised to hear you say. Um, You know, and the reason I say that is because when I look at the stats, they're they're not very good. And I agree with your comment as being an angler myself, and uh, done lots of little you know fishing sports fishing trips. Everybody I meet, whether it's a First Nations group that I've met a few times or Myself or my friends that go, we all want to see strong stocks of salmon. I mean, I don't think anybody wants to see these right. populations diminishing.
1: That's a very good point. That's a very good point, and I think part of where we've gotten, because things have gotten as poor as they have for some of our stocks, is that you have constituencies, uh, groups of human beings, <laughs> recreational anglers, commercial anglers, First Nations, who may have had very adversarial historical issues or baggage. Yeah. There, these things are getting worked through because everyone recognizes that we're in a very serious situation for many these We've all got to work together yeah. together to make sure we have these fish for the future.
2: Yeah. To, to comment a bit further on that, I think uh, some of the things that people see out on the water can be confusing because uh, like what we heard last year as an example is some people were having great fishing days. There were lots of fish out there. They they could you know fish for a couple of hours and bring uh, maybe a dozen fish to the boat or more in some cases. And so when they look at that and they say, I'm hearing there's a conservation problem, but at the same time, when I go fishing, I'm catching lots of fish and I'm being told I have to put them all back. I, I can't keep them and uh, it leads to some frustration. And that's some of the, the uh, understanding that we're trying to help uh, share with people is while some stocks are doing quite well other stocks that co-migrate at the same time are in some of the worst condition we've ever seen them and some of them are to the point where they're being considered for endangered species listing and there's serious concern for their long-term conservation so it's a tricky uh, uh, balancing act where there are some healthy populations and it would be reasonable to fish for those but it's also very difficult to make sure at the same time you're conserving the weak stocks that are also migrating in the mix. And uh, a lot of people are searching for solutions uh, in terms of how can we maintain ongoing access to fishing while we also want to uh, support these weak stocks and help help them kind of come out of the hole and, and, right. and, and recover.
0: I think that's a really good point, uh, Jason, because I, I've got this slide here we'll bring it up for the folks to see at home. And and you've used this slide, this one here, which basically details the various streams. So if I look at here, for example, there's the uh, Middle Fraser River Canyon. I, I'm, just call, I'm calling them streams to simplify this. Yeah, they're conservation units.
2: They're close to often watershed units, but they're conservation units yeah. of, oh, they're, of they're, salmon that are, yeah. are genetically uh, distinct from, yeah. from the other conservation units.
0: So is it fair to say that uh, maybe part of the issue is that um, a simple, simple, person like myself only knows that there's, at best, there's five species of salmon, not recognizing that even within those five species, there's uh, certain sort of sub-segment groups that spawn certain waters and they're not going to go elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And is that part of the issue we're dealing with here?
2: Yeah, that is, that is really the, the crux of the issue is these, these populations that have evolved in a large river system like the Fraser are all ideally suited to the watershed that they come from. They're adapted to the water temperature, the size of stream, the size of rocks they have to move to lay their eggs, uh, to sharing that habitat with the other species that they have <clears throat> to compete with. And so they're all ideally adapted, you know, since the last ice age to the conditions that they, uh, they've they evolved in. And so they're genetically distinct. You could not pull a Chinook from one of these rivers and drop it into another one and expect it to be as successful as the one that that is from there. I'm not saying that you can't um, help them out, or in some cases where you've got a major conservation problem, you know, there have been transplants that have been successful, but there's nothing as good as what has genetically evolved to be ideally suited for that stream. Yeah, and so when you look at at, at a, a chart like the one that that you have up here, yeah, the idea is that there are some Chinook, this is a chart of, of Chinook populations okay. in, in southern <clears throat> BC, primarily the Fraser River. And the idea on this chart is showing that there are some populations that are, are not at risk. They're the green ones and there's only three. <laughs> there's only and like then three. all the others are are some degree of either concern or there's a few that we don't have enough data to to actually determine right now. But ideally what you would be looking at here is a chart that's mostly green and maybe you'd have you know, one or two that have a bit of concern. Yeah. Instead, we're looking at a chart that doesn't have a lot of green. And this becomes part of the problem because in in this situation, uh, one of the populations that's doing really well is the South Thompson population, which it's right where I live. I live in Kamloops. So these fish come, come right by. And they're doing really well. And a lot of people But there's are a South saying,
0: Thompson right below it that's endangered, it says. Well,
2: that's right. And and, th- and those are also Chinook. And and this is part of the story around what's amazing and wonderful, but also challenging with the salmon. So the South Thompson Chinook, uh, the ones that are healthy, spawn in the large South Thompson River. That's a big river. It's got Shuswap Lake, you know, kind of in the middle uh, as a as a great water supply. It's a buffer. You've always got enough water. The water's always clean. Uh, you don't have temperature problems in the South Thompson River. And then the other populations that are spawning in the exact same general area are are different types of chinook, where they go into smaller streams, and they live in those streams for a whole year. And those smaller streams are having trouble. They're I they're see. suffering from droughts. They are more susceptible to the effects of development pressure, and those fish have to live in those streams after they hatch for a whole year. That's their life history. Wow. And in that year, if you have one bad day or one bad week, that whole population of fish that's gotten in there and, and gotten to that point can all uh you know be be uh be killed or die off or, or at least severely reduced in, in just you know one bad event. Wow. And so you know the South Thompson population is an example of a place that is probably naturally resilient, you know, those fish are in a bigger river. And the other interesting thing with those fish is they don't stay in their home stream for a year. They actually go to the ocean after uh, somewhere around uh, 60 to 90 days. So they have less exposure to the kinds of bad things that can happen in the freshwater environment. And yet, you know, right beside them, there's this other population that, you know, over the course of time since the last uh, glaciers were here, have evolved to also be successful. But now, under the pressures of human development, climate change, and other things, you're starting to see these major conservation problems show up.
0: Right. Well, this list here, Jason, has uh, roughly about thirty-seven different species that you're talking about. Or uh, what did you call them again? The They're conservation units. Cons- conservation units.
2: So those are all With, Chinook oh, salmon. Just Chinook. That's just
0: Chinook on okay. the list. Thirty-six of them. Three are not at risk. That's like that's less than ten percent. So if we were to look back at this table say 20 years ago how many of these would you if you had to estimate what would this graph look like compared yeah to
2: how green would it be 20 years ago I, i'm kind of shooting from the hip here yeah. but you know based on on my time and i've worked in the fraser area for a long time you might have had one or two of these that you had uh, a significant flag on uh, as oh, it almost there.
0: all green yeah
2: In the last 20 years, we've seen a significant change in the the well-being of these populations.
1: Yeah. You know, I I think just kind of step back to a bigger picture perspective, you know, this is a very complex challenge uh, and it's complex for a number of reasons. One, you know, we have it's the scale of of geography. We have 27000 kilometers of coastline that has to be managed for Pacific salmon purposes on, on the west coast of Canada. Um, there are upwards of 1,500 different streams, rivers that have salmon in them in the BC and the Yukon. You mentioned the Yukon as mm-hmm. well; which just a major salmon stream. Um, so, there, there <laughs> the scale of the thing is is huge, and and this is why when we say we have limited data, you know, it's a it's a big area to cover. Sure. There's seven different species, right? Um, Seven. We've, I said five, so there's well, seven. That, that's all right. Yeah. What, what are okay. they? Let me
0: see, test you. Go now. ahead. I, I can do the, the easy seven one. What
2: are the species? Well, it, it, there, there's, in, in Canada, people would generally say there's five species of Pacific salmon. Okay. So you've got your pink, chum, sockeye, chinook, and coho. And then a lot of people will also include steelhead because they are uh, a, a salmonid. It goes to the ocean. It has a very similar life history, but some things are different, and it's definitely a different uh, it's a species on its own, and then you also have uh, sea run cutthroat that people will 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 often include in there if, if we're we're counting up to seven. And then there's there's other kind of cousins in the family as well. But most people would say that the the true Pacific salmon there are five, and then steelhead is is a commonly referred to sixth, and then the sea run cutthroat, yeah. and, right. and then other cousins start to fit in sure. if you start to count higher than that.
1: Yeah. So it, it is a complex. Clear as mud, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a complex problem, uh, and and we do lack sufficient data, particularly in the freshwater streams and systems. I mean, huge number of our Chinook stocks, for example, their are data incomplete. And you know, we have a whole program devoted to trying to improve the data on on returns of salmon. What's the habitat like where they're they're spawning? And I think the the point that I would kind of make. To to the information that Jar- Jason has been sharing, is that you know, f- salmon their life they're they're unique in that they're born in freshwater, they migrate out to the open ocean, saltwater, and they have to come back to that very stream where they started their life and, and spawn and then die, and the old cycle then 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 begins uh, anew. We we don't really uh, have a very cohesive plan or approach for how we manage that freshwater habitat in a coordinated way. They have lots of interests, lots of groups that want to do the right thing, but, but they're not coordinated. Uh, and that's one of the messages that we keep taking to the government, both federal and provincial and First Nations. Um, we think our friends down in Washington State have, have a bit of a lead on this. They have a model down there that they started 20 years ago where they actually have divided the state into eight different sub-regions and they have what they call salmon recovery boards at those regional levels that look at these complex challenges within the systems in those regions. They're the ones closest to it. And they're consisting of elected officials, First Nations leaders, conservation organizations. And I think that's, we have a couple of regions in BC where this model, what I call it bottom-up as opposed to top-down, uh, where this has been used effectively, the Okanagan is, is, is one area. Um, and, and so we need to be doing more of that because as Jason's data shows, these are really specific, complex, localized challenges at the beginning, origin point for salmon, and the place where they, they end their lives as well. And so mm-hmm. we're pushing for the government as it thinks about this new money is not just to do the same old approach right but to start doing things differently and to try to come from the bottom up more grassroots oriented coordination on these streams and rivers uh you know for salmon
2: okay well that makes sense well and just to build on that andrew like th- i think that's a a good picture of the <clears throat> the the, f- the freshwater and that we don't have a good picture but that follows through to the ocean as well mm-hmm. and uh, I think the, the the comment that you were referring to that uh, Dr. Riddle was speaking to is around the lack of information we have on what is happening to the salmon in the, the time they spend out in the open ocean. Which is most salmon. of their life, right? It, it, it depends on the species, but oh, okay. for, for a lot of them, yeah, it's a majority of their life is yeah. out in the open ocean. There are salmon from other countries out there all across the North Pacific. And we have very, very little information to understand what is happening and I think there's no question that changes in the ocean ecosystem are what's driving the major thing, driving some of the declines that we're seeing right now. Yeah. And then that is compounded or, or further further complicated by things that are happening in the fresh water as Mike described. So we really lack you know, the information that you would want to have to manage this well. And if you don't have information and good science to understand what's happening, you're really starting to guess when you want to to take interventions to make things better. And, you know, it's a very, very important issue to a lot of people, the well-being of salmon. And so I think it's why we're really strongly advocating having the science to inform the decisions. It's not just science for the sake of science. It's science so we know what's going on. And so we can take better actions and have better policies.
0: Right. Sure, that makes sense. Michael, you mentioned about the lack of coordination. Mm -hmm. Is one of the issues the fact that uh, that uh, fisheries is a federal jurisdiction, but it ends when it turns in from ocean water to freshwater. It now becomes a provincial jurisdiction. Is that one of the issues? Uh,
1: you hit a, that's a, that's a, that is a complication for sure. It yeah. is a man-made one <laughs> by yeah. our politicians. Yeah, sure. yeah. Uh, that's one we could fix, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, and And I think that you've hit it right on the head. Uh, and, and by the way, this is not to in any way suggest that the people that work for Fisheries and Oceans or the province are are deficient. They're wonderful people. They're yeah. very intelligent people. Jason worked for them for many years before right. we stole him. Uh, our science advisor, Dr. Brian Riddle, as well. We have a very good relationship. Yeah. Uh, with fisheries and oceans and the province. But yeah, you know, it, it makes well, it like, complicated. It's like,
0: yeah, it's, it would be like blaming nurses for a, yeah. a a poorly run healthcare system. It's not their fault. I mean, it's there's the design of the. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Over but many they, years. There
1: are probably a lot of, you know, corollaries to this. Uh, the COVID situation we're dealing with and where you have communications, breakdowns, uh, you know, the vaccination challenges we're having in Canada right now where you have different authorities, you know, wanting to do things differently. It is it is a nature of, I think, living in a democratic society. Right, But it's one we do have to fix. Um, and I think it's one that is going to be advanced significantly in terms of improvement because we have a context in Canada where First Nations are being empowered much more significantly uh, through the adoption of the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. This is going to drive Uh, a much more local need for a much more localized collaborative approach because First Nations approach to managing anything is very, very localized. Localized. There will be...
0: Which is what you're talking about, Jason, which is where the problem lies. So I guess if you have a localized solutions to localized problem, you're going to have some success. You can't
2: say we've looked after the ocean, so don't worry about what's happening locally. Or you can't say I've got a great plan for the region and that'll solve everything. You really need to work at all the scales, and they need to fit together under an effective plan, as Mike has been framing, in order to get the results we want. So it's not just about picking one thing. That's
1: right. And I would add to what Jason's saying there, uh, a lot of credit is due to both the federal and provincial government. There have been significant steps taken in the last couple of years in particular to work more closely together. i give you one example is on the topic of this conversion from open net pen aquaculture of salmon to closed containment. Um, the federal government announced a consultation to help facilitate that transition, transition led by one of our local MPs, Terry Beach. He invited uh, the lead provincial MLA for salmon, Finn Donnelly, to join him as part of that consultation. So they were at the, the discussions and hearing hearings together. This type of coordination at a political level, is the right direction um, and the right right step forward. So we just have to, Andrew, like like so much that's related to the environment and climate change. We have to bring a sense of urgency to it. We really have to get on with it, Mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of the scientists globally and even here in Canada are saying, you know, the data is pointing towards action needed in the next decade. Certainly, if we're going to make any positive changes, you know, for the environment. Yeah, I'll add
2: a comment on this. And that is, it's really important for people that that care about this for whatever reason to understand that societally uh, our mindset is important. And I think the way salmon have been managed to date has been, we'll do all this other stuff. And if something breaks in the world of salmon, well, we'll fix it. We'll do habitat restoration or we'll start up a hatchery and that'll solve the problem or We'll do something, you know, that we'll get the biologists to work their science magic. And it isn't like that. Like we, if you think about it, the way I think about it, we live in a tremendously privileged and resourceful society here in Canada, in North America. And I think that we can have development, we can have a prosperous economy, but we have to be mindful of the fact that the ability of nature to absorb impacts is not endless.
1: Yeah, and sure.
2: you, you can do things And and have a development activity, have a prosperous economy, but you need to make sure when that's uh, being undertaken that a similar amount of attention and appropriate investment is made in sustaining the natural resource that was there before any of us showed up. And it's the idea that we can just do whatever we want and still have salmon be okay that is the fallacy. And as biologists, I think we've contributed to that a little bit by saying, "Well, we can restore, and you know, hatcheries can do some things. Those are true, and we can do stuff to make it better. But we have to stop wrecking stuff on the way, right? Because we're we're, we're digging the hole deeper as we try to fix things. Sure. And This is not an anti-development or anti-economy yeah. message. Like I drive a car, yeah. you know, I turn my lights on, and uh, I, I hope that I can keep doing that. But it's about thinking about these things." and starting to make choices that start to tip the balance towards sustainability for salmon as opposed to working against it and thinking we can fix it after. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's
0: well, a really good point.
1: And we you know we have this context historically in Canada don't we where we have on the east coast the history of the cod collapse that looms large in fisheries mm-hmm. kind of history. Yeah. You know we often joke because we will get Periodically, we will get a federal fisheries minister who is from West Coast Canada, and it's so much easier because they 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 live here, they yeah. see all the boats, they know the communities, you know. And then, more often than not, God love them, we get East Coast ministers, and they have a different frame of reference often for salmon issues, uh, because you know there's really not much, uh, there is no really recreational fishery I don't believe left on on for salmon. It's and very very, little. very limited, very, little. very
2: limited, and uh, it's costly, and you, you basically get, a, there's no public, just walk up and go fishing. You get a permit for a that's piece right. of water for a day, and that's where you right. get to fish for a right. couple of days. It, it's very, you know, very.
1: And on top of that, the cod thing looms, and it's kind of a you know negative kind of historical reference, I know, but the reason I raise all this uh, is to say we do have a thriving Pacific salmon set of species here. Uh, they have the ability to be restored. They are resilient, as I said, and we have people in, in, in spades committed to doing the right thing. So we here on the West Coast are, in addition to Jason's uh, points there, we, are, we have salmon and we have the ability you know, to turn this around. And, mm-hmm. and that mindset, as Jason said, I think it's an excellent point. This is mm-hmm. so key that we we I hope that comes out from us that we we, you know, have a very positive and, and optimistic mindset for what can be done. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the other thing I'd say but, about the Salmon Foundation yeah. is is we've evolved as the, the situation has evolved for salmon as a, as a nonprofit organization. When when I started at PSF 12 years ago, uh, our science, current science advisor, Brian Rill, was our CEO, and I worked for him for many years. And we got into science in a big way. We had been just been doing the community grant-making, and what's wonderful, and we continue to, it's our heart and soul. And then we got into science with Brian's leadership because he'd come from DFO Science, and he sensed, and well, not sensed, it was real, that budgets were being cut for science. We were, not, we were undermining the scientists by not letting them speak publicly. Um, and, and we, someone had to do the science because as you pointed out earlier, the freshwater data, the, the Strait of Georgia data, all points back to the mid-90s, early 90s. Everything just went in the can, right? Mm-hmm. But nothing was being done. And so we got into science in a big way. And now we have multiple science programs, uh, you know, open ocean all the way up into freshwater. A huge part of our organization. It's about 60% of what we do now. And then we got into data again because... With leadership was needed. There wasn't enough data to even make good good decisions. How so, can you
0: you're, you're flying blind as a leader if you don't have the data or the science behind you to make policies?
1: And and to the DFO's credit, the uh, Fisheries and Oceans Canada, and Rebecca Reed, who's their regional director general, they invested money in us to do this because she candidly said, "Look, you will get it done faster, more efficiently than we we can get get this done." So. You know, I, I'm proud of our little old nonprofit that started in 1987 because we continue like the salmon. We we evolve, and we we go in those directions strategically where there's leadership needed, where action needs to be catalyzed, um, and uh, and I think you know the the material that we're developing, the science that we're we're uh, uncovering, is really I think in the next 10 years going to be very helpful in terms of how we then. Put action plans uh, for con- for rest- restoration into play.
0: Okay. Well, this is good. Well, we're going to get into that, and we're actually going to talk about what the PSF does to help these salmon species. But I do want to spend a bit more time talking about some of these um, statistical realities of our world today, just so that people can really, for the for the listeners, can this can really sure. sink in context. Okay. So to to let the listeners really let this sink in. 2020. This is a statistic from one of your slides. It's the all-country commercial catch summary for Pacific salmon in the North Pacific, in valued in uh, thousands of tons. And in the year before, in 2019, there were just below 1 million thousand tons. What is that? One one one. That's a billion. That's a billion. That's a billion tons of salmon. Were, I have a
1: History degree, by the way, Andrew, so don't look <laughs> at anything related to numbers. Well, I'm the, I'm, I'm the finance guy. Exactly. I should be able to nail these no, I'm numbers. At you.
0: <laughs> that the next year it dropped by 40%. And just to give people a context, because this graph shows us going all the way back to 1970, just to eyeball this, the amount of salmon that were pulled out of the ocean last year, and it's not like these commercial fishermen aren't trying. And it's right. not like they don't have the technology. I mean, their technology is far more advanced than it was 20 years ago. The last time they had this low of a of a sort of harvest, if you want to call it, was in 1982. Now what's also interesting in the statistic is Canada, which is the bottom of this in yellow, is basically a rounding error on this list. Uh, Alaska has generally been consistent every year from what I can see all the way back in the early 90s, 80s. Japan has dwindled down as far as what they're harvesting, but what's fascinating, is the Russians. And I see this here as being that they're just continuing to expand how much salmon they're pulling out of the ocean. Um, Have I got a, am I reading this, this graph right? Have we got a yes, Russian problem here? Well,
2: <laughs> I wouldn't just dis- that. That is a, an enticing uh, extract and maybe simplification. I wouldn't call it a Russian problem, okay. but
1: he's so diplomatic. When correct <laughs> you, <doesn't>
2: he? <laughs> but 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 well, I'll, I'll I'll speak to to some of the the things to, to to explain the context for this slide and maybe some of the uh, the takeaways that, that that you're you're leading. Please, to, yeah, because this is pretty compelling. Yeah. So the context for this slide. This slide was prepared by uh, Dr. Brian Riddle for. Uh, us to update our board because the, the PSF board of directors said, Hey, can you give us a summary of the state of salmon right now? We, we hear, you know, one person tells us salmon are doing great. And another person tells us they're not doing great. And we see all these different reports. And so can you organize this and lay it out for us and tell us what's going on? So this was part of that context. And the point that, um, Brian uh, meant to uh, highlight by displaying the slide was the big drop from 2019 to 2020. And it's saying that something major is going on out there in the North Pacific that's causing this drop. And uh, when we spoke to this uh, this slide, one of the people asked us, "Well, maybe that was just because of COVID, right? People didn't go fishing." And uh, Brian says through the uh, uh, panels that he sits on, "No, that's absolutely not the case. It's what you said, Andrew. They were fishing. They were trying. This is." uh, more than likely, you know, with fairly high certainty, a signal that something major is going on in the North Pacific and that there were fewer fish out there to be caught. So one of the things that is, is um, interesting, confusing, and we still don't understand very well is how all the salmon out there in the North Pacific interact. And one of the, the, the parts that, um, maybe I should have introduced earlier when you were just asking for you know the overall picture of salmon, we were talking about some of the stocks in British Columbia that are doing really poorly. Uh, there are recent uh, science papers out there that say there are actually more salmon, total salmon in the North Pacific now, maybe not 2020, but up, because this report was about a year old, more salmon in the North Pacific than ever. But what seems to be happening is it's a shift in what kinds of salmon from where, are out there. And in particular, what the authors of a couple of these papers have spoken to is there's a lot of hatchery production of pink and chum. Mm. So pink salmon and chum salmon coming from Alaska, Russia, and Japan, like huge amounts of hatchery enhancement where people who might be familiar with some of the hatcheries in British Columbia will say, Oh, I've seen a hatchery. They can produce a lot of salmon. The Canadian production of salmon compared to the overall uh, salmon uh, enhancement going into the North Pacific is around 6% if you include everything. Right? That's and, and if you don't include our sockeye spawning channels, which a lot of people would say are are not that different from nature. We've created an ideal habitat for them, but they swim in on their own, they leave on their own. You know, We don't feed them or anything like that. If you exclude those, we're only about 3% of the total enhancement in the whole North Pacific. So there are all these... Um, uh, conundrums out there. There are more salmon, but th- there are interactions that, that are that are going on mm. where, uh, you know, Bristol Bay in Alaska, their sockeye populations seem to still be doing great. Yet in Canada, our, our sockeye populations, many of them are not doing well. And in fact, even in other parts of Alaska, their sockeye populations are not doing well. So there's a huge story of complexity and interactions out there that Kind of goes back to the point that Mike and I were touching on earlier around having the science and information to understand what's going on so that we can make informed decisions. But the work that we do in Canada is a small part of what's happening out in the North Pacific, as as you're starting to see when you, you question, well, what's going on in these slides? So yes, Russia is doing a lot of fishing, but what I would say you want to couple with that is they're doing a lot of enhancement too. And that enhancement might actually be leading to unintended competitive interactions out there in the North Pacific Mm. with our salmon.
0: Oh, interesting.
2: And so we have to start thinking about that and and start thinking it's not just a problem that we need to look at locally in BC or Canada. We need to start thinking about it internationally.
1: (laughs) And for the history majors in the audience, Jason (laughs) describes this to me as, you know, the open ocean out there is the grocery store. And if there's too many folk going to the grocery store, (laughs) they're not going to be enough for everybody. It's a classic
0: tragedy of the commons, isn't it?
1: I think that's absolutely right, absolutely. And this is compounded by the scientists pointing to data that shows that the water temperatures are warming. Okay. And the water temperatures warming are creating changes uh, and uncertainty relative to food production uh, for for salmon in the marine context. So if there's not enough food uh, and there's too many fish, and that's not a good, good recipe. So, again, that's, I believe, something we can change. Mm-hmm. We can't affect that. Um, but back to the complexity point, you're now talking about an international diplomatic challenge. Right. Right. Yeah. But if that's. We'll send Jason. You know, <laughs> he's very diplomatic, isn't he? Quite higher. But, uh, you know, I think it's something we do have to be highlighting. Uh, for our elected officials federally, in particular, as they have conversations, yeah. there is a North Pacific Anadromous Fish Commission, which is made up of uh, it's a multilateral organization focused on salmon, made up of people from all these these countries, and uh, this research is being shared. So it's something we've got to try to try to get on,
2: and, and it tracks all the way back to home. Right. Yeah. I, we can observe these things. And, and this was, you know, my uh, my comment on the, the production of hatchery fish from other countries wasn't meant to point a finger at them. It was sure. it's meant to say, this is what some of the science is it, indicating to us and we should be thinking about it. But we should be tracking that all the way back to home here. Like right. One of the calls that, that we hear from people who really care about the salmon in their community is, okay, if there aren't enough salmon, let build us a hatchery and, and we'll volunteer and we'll make them in the hatchery. Well, I think hatcheries have done many wonderful things, but they're also not the solution every time. And when you have a situation that might be driven by other things, a hatchery in your local watershed might not be the solution. So I, I'm just kind of walking on some slippery, thin yeah. ice here because a lot of people are really polarized around hatcheries. You either love them or you hate them. Uh, I'm in the middle where hatcheries done the right way uh, in the right place can be a huge benefit to the conservation and management of salmon resources, but they're also not a magic solution that you go, got a problem, start a hatchery. They they need to be done carefully to avoid unintended consequences and to ideally fit um, very uh, seamlessly into the natural ecosystem as opposed to a major intrusion on top of it. And when uh, hatcheries are done well, they operate like that. And I would say most hatcheries in my view in British Columbia are are, are run that way.
0: Hmm. Who runs our hatcheries in British Columbia?
1: Well, you know, it, 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 you know, starting at sort of the largest scale production, we have federally supported hatcheries in British Columbia. Um, That's where the mass, the vast majority of production comes from. But then there are other levels. We have, you know, we're called economic development uh, hatcheries that are not as big as the sort of government ones we're talking about, but also not as small as some of these small third layer, which is kind of these community-based hatcheries, which are very much focused around stewardship, getting people out, engaged in supporting conservation, getting kids out, to learn about salmon. So there's three, I think best to describe it, three kind of sizes of hatcheries. Okay. <clears throat> the Salmon Foundation supports through grants the middle layer and the small layer. Gotcha. Uh, the community economic development hatcheries and then the, um, and then the small-scale community hatcheries. And we're working with them. Uh, we have a research program right now, our hatchery effectiveness program, to try to help all these hatcheries identify the best possible technologies and practices to make sure that the fish that they do put out are gonna have the best chance for survival. You know, there's a great example, I was thinking as Jason was talking there about working with the hatcheries. Um, I was out this summer in Vancouver Island up near uh, the uh, um, Comox, Uh, uh, Courtney area, and there's a stream up there called the Millard Piercey stream. We have a very strong stewardship group there, and they, for many years, had a small, you know, hatchery. These hatcheries are many size, many times like you know, twenty by twenty, small, small, small operation, Mm. volunteer driven, community pride of the community. Right. Uh, This is a group of volunteers, Andrew, that actually made the decision themselves. I think it was about a decade ago that they were going to stop their hatchery production because they'd been doing their own citizen science data tracking it, and they just said, this isn't making a difference. So we're going to stop doing that for now. And this was in consultation with Fisheries and Oceans who supervised these things. And they decided to totally reorient themselves around understanding the habitat, changing the stream, a riparian habitat, which is the vegetation along the side of the stream, shoring up the quality of the, the spawning habitat, uh, and then started a citizen science monitoring program. People every day out there measuring water quality, water volume, uh, how is the stream or river changing? Uh, are there opportunities to create side channels, we call them, where the fish can hide, uh, you know, where they can spend the winters in, in some species cases. So this group has completely reoriented themselves and and done an excellent job and uh, seeing some very positive returns with their salmon by getting out of the hatchery operation in that context and focusing on habitat and citizen science. Now as Jason says this there's some places where you do need hatcheries um, and what we're trying to do is work with our 340 plus grantees that we have that the ones that do have hatcheries to try to make sure that they're you know doing them well. One of the other things we found through our science um, is that you know where you release your your little fish out of the hatchery, and when, so so location and timing of release. These is hugely important. Mm. You know, you can't just turn the pipe on and let all the salmon that you just raised go out at once. Because if you do, what you're going to find are a bunch of predators that are very bright, <laughs> that just have a buffet. You know, and right. so you've just raised all those salmon for you know the, yeah. the mergansers and. and the heron and right. seals. And we haven't talked about seals yet. We yeah, can get into that if you want to get into something are, complex. Yeah. But so we're we're working, doing the research, working with some of these hatcheries now to figure out, okay, well, how can you stagger the you know, location, time? Are there some like Chinook that you can raise to larger size in a in an open pen type of situation? And then that gives them a higher likelihood of successfully having a higher number mm. come to return.
2: Interesting. Because
1: I think our stat is, you know, it, it's about in terms of the wild to hatchery success it's about half it
2: it depends where but yeah. i think that was some of the findings from the calochen as an yeah. example that we yeah. studied so
1: those hatchery That's fish coming back do about as half as well as the wild fish right so how can you if you're going to do hatcheries how can you change the way they operate to make sure that those those hatchery fish do better okay. and and yes we we have to answer the question and it is a con, it is a um what's the word, you know, a contentious one, potentially, of this notion of wild versus hatchery interaction.
2: If just, uh, I Can I, I just mention one, yeah,
0: thing. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> there,
1: is, there is one other uh,
2: hatchery <clears throat> um, model out there, or at least one that we, we should mention if we're going to talk about the hatchery conversation. And that is, you know, what Mike described, you know, government kind of running hatcheries and communities small community group running hatcheries, there's one that we are involved with, which is a really mm-hmm. innovative, interesting partnership in Rivers Inlet. It's the Percy Waukes Hatchery, where it's and a partnership a co- for the listeners. Give sure. a context. Where is Rivers Inlet and in Percy? So Rivers Inlet is in the central coast of British Columbia, a great well-known uh, salmon area uh, south of Bella Coola. Oh, OK, I'll perfect. Say, just a Thank general you. description. Yeah. And this hatchery up at the head of Rivers Inlet uh, in the territory of the Weakono people, it is a wonderful partnership with some of the uh, um, what do we call sport fish lodges, recreational yeah. lodges in the area, Duncanby and Good Hope, and the we can Own Nation, uh, supported by DFO and PSF is is the kind of a partner uh, helping to pull these entities uh, or support these entities in pulling their energies and interest together and and uh, working to have people there to help operate, support, uh, assess the operations of the hatchery. So it's a different model. It's a model where it's not solely dependent on government funding it's it's substantially um, almost entirely run by funding that's raised by these sport mm-hmm. fish entities and then operated in very direct partnership with the first Nation right so it's a really neat mm-hmm. idea well, okay. and it's something that we've been uh, talking with the people that you know w- I, I don't think we're trying to take credit for the idea no we, we are yeah. we are happy to be <clears throat> an entity that support but the idea really came from the people that were out there Rick
1: Hansen yeah Rick Sid K, uh, tony
2: allard yeah and and they have an idea that maybe this could be exported to other places mm. and that's something that we've been talking to them about again it's not our idea but yeah. it's something that you know with the, the time we have with you today we thought we would mention it
0: and it sounds like this touches on what you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation michael which is the coordination issue yeah and maybe this is a good example yeah. of where there's been coordination amongst various stakeholders. And it sounds like you got a successful program.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and one of the interesting things about this one, Andrew, someone likes to fish. This is um, scientifically been proven, this, this river's inlet and these Chinook that come from there are scientifically proven to be critically important genetically uh, in terms of the really big Chinook <laughs> that, that sport anglers love you right, know, yeah. uh, and the First Nations need. But there's, you know, just Google, you know, the 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 Rivers Inlet Wannock Chinook program and you'll see these humongous 70, 80 pound Chinook coming back to spawn. Yeah. And and most importantly, from the First Nations perspective, they had had a hatchery. It had gone defunct. They needed some money, uh, but they had the will and the commitment because from a conservation standpoint, they wanted to make sure that those fish maintained for the future. Um, and it is a wonderful story of, of, of many different people of different backgrounds coming together mm-hmm. and working together and, and making a, so far it's been a, been a, been a great success. With, with the help of Rick Hansen and Sid Key, Tony Allard and many others, Teddy Walkus, um, they built a $2 million plus facility, brand new hatchery. Uh, wow. operation a few years ago that's going very well. Well, and that's a and it, great story. And the
2: chief and council of the nation, you know a big supporter like, well, yeah, yeah. we
1: couldn't do it with they. It's their land. Uh, yeah. it's their their will that it exists. Uh, and there are many activities that go on in that hatchery where the first Nations members come in uh, and participate tag tagging and 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 whatnot that goes on for the research program. Yeah. so you got to start yeah. it.
0: Yeah, that's a good story. <laughs> Well, let's contrast, that's a phenomenal story. Thank you for that. Let's contrast that to a a small uh, sort of community group that's making some big headways in their small little area of the world to the Fraser Sockeye. Now, the Fraser River is a massive river, um, huge amount of development. So to give the listeners who are, uh, to give some context, in 2004, the amount of Fraser Sockeye salmon that returned to spawn was 4 million. In two thousand eight, it was roughly about one point six million. In two thousand, so these are in four year increments. In two thousand twelve it was two point two five million. And then in two thousand sixteen it dropped to seven hundred and fifty thousand. And in last year, it was about two hundred and fifty thousand, an absolute fraction of what we saw a short sixteen years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is really not a very good picture.
2: It's it's frightening. And and just for context, the reason that these are shown in four year increments is uh, sockeye uh, in the Fraser come back very, very strongly on a four year cycle. Okay. So other salmon species might have some variability like Chinook can come back as three, four, five, even six years old. Sockeye are in the high 90% likely to come back as four year olds. So this is not showing a variability where you have a strong year and a weak year and that's kind of part of the natural cycle. This is showing that on this run cycle in the Fraser River, you know, back in two thousand four, there were four million fish and a healthy fishery uh, for everybody. A healthy commercial fishery. A, there was a sport fishery. There was yeah. a, a healthy First Nation fishery. All, all you know, able well, to four million. All able to benefit from, from this wonderful. Let return. that sink
0: in. Four million in two thousand four, and two hundred and fifty thousand in two thousand twenty.
2: Well, and you know, it just it, since we're going to spend a few minutes on 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 doom and gloom to, to just pile on top of this, a lot of these fish had to get past the rock slide at Big Bar, which-
0: So sorry, what is that? The,
2: the, the, There's a big landslide on the Fraser River at, at Big Bar, okay. which is north of Lillooet, between okay. Lillooet and Williams Lake. Okay. So it was, it was quite, uh, quite, it was getting a lot of traffic in the yeah. news when it was first discovered in 2019, but it, it essentially blocks fish uh, ability to get past that point in the river uh at 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 the flows that they have during the time of year they're trying to migrate so you have a situation where uh it it, more than likely the ocean conditions have been so poor for these fish that they have have dropped probably compounded by other factors maybe fishing and other environmental concerns but then when they get into the river a number of those populations as they spread out through the Fraser would have had to get past this new impediment, which is actually a natural event, this big landslide sure. into the Fraser River that, that is almost nearly stopping them from getting up to their spawning grounds. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: It's it, The big bar cannot be underestimated. It is a huge problem. Right. And the government there, has spent 200 plus million at this they,
2: point? They, they've at least committed that. I don't know how much of it has been spent. Yeah. But, but this just happened two years
1: ago, um, two years ago in July, right?
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. it was discovered in about, I, I don't know why, May or June in, in 19. 2019. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. So, it, I mean, it's a relatively new thing, but it is a there's no other way to no way to get around it. You know, it's it's a, that way or, or no. Right. So it, it is being addressed and the government has has made um, they've made a, a natural fish way for the fish to try to get up when the water levels are uh, allowing it. They're constructing a man made uh, solution. They have like a fish to, ladder. A fish ladder, Mm -hmm. they had a uh, a pneumatic, a a fish cannon uh, that was brought up from the United States actually moved the fish up shoot them in a, can, in a cannon up over. Yeah, because because of this very problem. Sure, well, whatever works, I guess. Well, but,
2: we have to be careful. The cannon's a bit uh, it's not of a, a misnomer. It's it's, a, it's it's actually it a relatively the gentle hand.
1: water tube. Gives good energy. You know pushes what, you should there. invite some of a, a fish, fish cannon, to come to be interviewed. How was it to take the cannon? <laughs> but you know, the point I'd, I'd make about this one uh, with the sockeye and the mm-hmm. big bar is, you know, a lot of issues Human issues, social issues in particular, like homelessness, or you know, we're going to fix this problem by X date. Mm-hmm. Right? So you can't do that with the environment. You can't do that. Turns out you can't do it with homelessness either. Apparently, you know, you can't definitely do it with with salmon because the conditions are constantly changing and evolving. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is the message we have to get to politicians who are very well intended. Um, you know. You, you cannot expect to drop a bunch of money one year and in a year or two, it's going to be fixed. Mm-hmm. This is going to require, first of all, we've gotten ourselves into a big hole, right? We've, we've allowed this to get to this point, mm-hmm. And it's going to take a long time to get out of it. It's going to take a lot of money. And I think the other point I'd make is it's, there's no silver bullets, right? We will fix Big Bar eventually and good good on the federal and provincial government for doing that but something else will happen.
0: Right, And Point.
1: And so we have to always be, this is why better data collection, uh, better data assessment, always investing in science, including citizen science, First Nations, this is critical and, and keeping that up, right? Mm-hmm. Now, down in Washington State, just quick example, just to fix the habitat concerns alone that they have around what it would take to recover salmon, they estimate $4 billion.
0: Wow, $4 billion. $4 billion.
1: And they made that estimate, incidentally, many years ago. And and they've only made a little bit of a dent in that. So, you know, order of magnitude, this is a big thing to maintain these animals if we are gonna continue to develop and access them the way we, we would like to. Right? Mm-hmm. We have to just decide, are we gonna make that commitment as a society or not? Mm-hmm. We think we should yeah. and, uh, and and hope that we will.
2: And, and just to emphasize a point I made a bit <clears throat> earlier, that's assuming we don't keep digging the hole deeper, mm-hmm. right? So th- th- somebody asked me- This is about the
0: behavioral change that we all- th- That's the right. The
2: mindset you were talking about, Jason. Somebody asked me a long time ago, uh, what do we need so that salmon are as good 50 years from now as they are today? And I said, Ooh. we just have to stop wrecking stuff, right? right? But we can't do that. Like, our society expects to develop and grow and our economy prosper, and that's okay. But if we have to do it carefully and thoughtfully and recognize that You know, if we're going to want to have a whatever, a mall with a Costco in our neighborhood, maybe you don't build it on the wetland that salmon winter habitat and somebody that maybe stands to profit from that will make a compelling case as to why it's a good business investment. But you then have to ask yourself, what would it cost to replace that salmon habitat? And maybe the better choice is to protect the salmon habitat that nature's already put there for you and move that development somewhere else or do that development a different way. Mm-hmm. That's, it's not about let's stop and I'll, I'll go, you know, uh, try to live under a tree mm-hmm. or that kind of thing, because that's you know where the rhetoric can get to. It's about using the, the, the science that we have and the know-how that we have to allow our economy to develop, but to develop in a way that sustains the salmon alongside us. Mm-hmm.